0: The subject for the evening talk is Aloneness and Becoming. At the beginning of the the year, Henrietta and I were in India, where I go to Bodhagaya small village in the state of Bihar, where the Buddha was enlightened, where he gave teachings some two and a half thousand years ago. And in recent years, since about the mid-seventies, I have been going there regularly to give some uh, teachings there. And in the latter part of January, Henrietta and I and some friends had just left there to go take the train some six hours away to Benares, or Baranasi, as it's called these days, and to spend one or two days there before I uh, returned home. And while there, staying in a uh, small hotel near uh, the ghats the, s- the steps down to the uh, River Ganges, I. Received a telephone call from my uh, sister, who lives in Australia, but was at home with my mother, telling me that my father had died. And it uh, wasn't unexpected, but they had had immense uh, trouble and difficulty in getting hold of me, given the situation in in India. And if I add, I was rather amused. They even went to the uh, extreme. Of uh, ringing the um, holiday inn in Delhi, and uh, I don't think my, I realize my sister must have been rather out of touch with me because I don't think I've ever stayed in a hotel which provides towels in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and so after I uh, received this um, um, the te- uh, telephone call, I uh, went for a, a walk along the Ganges, along the steps there to the Burning Guts, where those who uh, died that day in um, Benares are cremated on the, the banks there of the river. And as those of you too who have lost loved ones will know the the feelings of those moments and those periods and the ending of contact no. and association with somebody who has, with whom one has been very close for many years of one's life. And in those times we find ourselves reflecting on our life and other lives, on the circumstances on life and of course particularly on the life of the loved one. And we see, too, how we, as the living generation in the whole processes of things, we move through the the phases of babyhood, childhood to teenagers to adulthood, middle age, old age, if we pass through all of those periods, and we might say of that we one thing becoming older, becoming different in appearance, sometimes in attitude and perceptions, as we move and become through these phases of life. And in that one level we might say this is something that you and I, that we all share together and participate in together. And also it is something of our our aloneness too in this world of togetherness. And I think sometimes, with our uh, life and the experience of our life, sometimes there are these moments and sometimes rather, perhaps sadly, that they sometimes confined to the very beginning of life and the end of life, to a birth, particularly if we had the privilege of witnessing or participating in a birth, or At the end of life, when in those times, sometimes there we are struck by the the magnitude of being alive, of being on this earth, and experiencing something which we've had no intention or wish to be born into, no anticipation of, no no preparation for, in any way, and yet we find ourselves on this earth as the living generation, and with a future which has an immense number of unknowns to each and every one of us. And yet there's a certain assurance too that given 10 years, 20 years, 30, 50 years, maybe a bit more for a small minority in the hall here, our life will have exhausted itself and we'll have come into this world, and we will have passed out, and all the contact, and all the familiarity, and the associations, the experiences, the friendships, the problems, will have come to a halt. And we see too that when we look at our life, the loneliness of it, and the togetherness of it, the becoming movement of our life, that in a way, it's all. this is all that we will know insofar as, when we die, we're not going to be able to, I suspect, look back and say, oh, I'm dead. (laughs) And so for us, in experiential terms, we might say this is it for us. And here we have our life and our being, with all the vulnerability, the fragility of eternity the enormity of it. And sometimes in our reflections, spiritually, philosophically, we can find perhaps some vehicle in our reflections, for some sobering in a way and perhaps maturing of our life and the, the way that we are living from day to day and what we are doing with our life. And there are so many times we, the philosopher inside of us, sometimes, as it were, moves to our head and we forget, perhaps, that there may have been some original depth of statement, original depth of communication. And one of those which I have in mind, which we have said to ourselves and we have said to countless others, you can't take it with you no matter what the accumulation, and what the success, and what the profit, and what the wealth, none of it can be taken with us. And when we have those times of reflection, of stepping back, and just having a look at the wider view of the whole schema and nature of things, if we really took that single statement to heart, especially in our culture, with its rabid greed and selfishness. If we really took such statements to heart, we cannot take it with us. Then that might have a real sobering impact on our living, on what we do, on the relationship to our our possessions. And perhaps there might come about inside of us a certain contentment with what we have certain comfort with our situation, however it may be. And we wouldn't feel that envy and that insidious jealousy of other people, because we have looked at life and we have said that life uh, is experiencing some fulfillment, some compliment, in a way, with death. In uh, uh, the center in England, it's a uh, a small uh, house called Guy House. We have (coughs) um, uh, three small cells and quite regularly we throw some of our friends in there and (laughs) leave them in there for a few weeks to reflect on these things If I had my way, we'd just have a little hole in the door and put a plate of cabbage through, but anyway. So our friends there in these small cells, are about eight foot by eight foot, and our friends go in there for varying lengths of time. And just recently, one of our friends was in there for several weeks, and I said to him, let's um, get out of here and go for a walk and we went for a walk and we were talking and discussing becoming and the whole process of movement in time and the ideas that you and I have about becoming this and becoming that. And he was commenting in the, the stillness and the silence of that uh, cell, how even in just the quietitude there with having just nothing around him and just that space and nothing going on day in and day out, that the becoming movement, of course, is still to varying degrees taking place. And what he was noticing, and I think what we notice in ourselves is in that becoming movement, in that process of being somebody with a particular function and role and the, the shaping of it through time that it requires for whatever we wish to become, others. It requires that cooperation of situations and environment and knowledge and cooperation of the world, immediate and distant, of the world that we live in, in order that you and I may become whoever, whatever we want to be. And how, in that process of becoming, and in the interest in becoming, and how much that is inside of us, inside of human beings of any, I think, any culture, the becoming process is taking place, we wish to become whatever. How, in that movement of becoming, how does that becoming affect the relationship with people? What's the What's what's manifesting through that wish? How do we treat other human beings in our interest to become? And so sometimes when when we, as I say, step back a little bit and look at a more overview of our relationship to life, can there be that becoming which is so considerate and kindly and thoughtful in the world that the becoming is free from the wish to become at the expense of at the exploitation of at the abuse of and then, when that becoming there is taking place that movement in our heart in our thought in our intellect is taking place it seems that what's asked of us to say in that thought in that movement let the movement accommodate those who are close. Let the movement actually embrace in the awareness the impact of that on those who are around. And sometimes we delude ourselves with terrible consequences because we delude ourselves into thinking self, 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 self. And When we think self, 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 we forget, we delude ourselves because it's self with other. Not self, self self-existent, not self, just me, just I, there is no such thing in this universe. But in the appearance of self, it's the very revelation of other. what would that mean for us as human beings? What kind of awareness, what kind of resource would be necessary for us to dig deep into ourselves and dig deep in such a way that in the appearance of self, immediately there's a light of other. And the light of other which says others matter as much as self Self is revealed through the presence of other. Self has no self-existence to it. No substance to it of itself. It's born in relationship to other existing other, through other. What kind of awareness we need to draw out of ourselves to, to see that? And how that would the speech, the language, the word, the pen, the movement, the sharing, the being, being together because self is the invitation to other. I would say there would be of such a dimension when we see the emptiness of the belief of self as me as. Uh, Unique, special, different, separate, or whatever. That we see through the fiction of that, the make-believe world of all of that. I think that kind of light of awareness which we would realise through that, that in a way that the self-other would almost turn on its head. Turn around so radically and dramatically in such a way that when we're speaking to other, we're speaking to self. When we're looking at self, me, self, we're looking at other. When we hear the voice of another human being and she or he is speaking of their difficulty, their pain, their confusion, their their love, their affection, their relationship, whatever it might be, There'd be an ongoing revelation, in all of that, of ourself. We'd feel the closeness of it because self and other were her, would be interchangeable. The Buddha, and his uh, lovely wisdom and uh, deep care and concern for humanity, speaks of this frequently, speaks of a a sensitivity to life, of an empathy with life, of a deep friendship with life, with life forms. And in the body of that friendship, in the kindness of that friendship, the self-other division loses its substance feels deeply, kindly towards people. So that when we feel inside of us that the, the, the movement of becoming, and you and I, we ha- and others and our friends, we have our aspirations towards becoming. We find ourselves here dwelling on what we might become, what might take place in the flow and the rhythm of time. in those thoughts, in that stream of thinking, in those ideas and in those plans? How exclusive is it? How narrow, how restricted, how much self is in it? And how much is that awareness in the stream of thoughts, simultaneously in relationship to other? to other selves. If it's not, we're terribly blind. We're living in the make-believe world of independent self. (laughs) On the walk with my friend, who is still sitting in the cell. I don't think you'll mind me talking about this. (laughs) (coughs) We entered into further discussion together. And he was saying, as others of you will know and experience, how in the meditations, in sitting and being still, the human... Mm. I often like to say the human being not the human doing the human efforting the human striving after human being somewhere the human being has got being forgotten soon it would be human neurosis <laughs> so sometimes we recall there are some glimpses in which we remember that we are a human being, and sometimes in in that in those moments there is that contentment with just being, and with our contentment with our being, there's a, a general sense of settling in to the here now situation, and yet they're very organic life itself, the very way of life, seems to be that even in being, there's becoming. Even in being utterly still, the state of mind, the state of awareness, the state of absorption, whatever, can't just be. When we're very receptive to the process in our utter stillness. Still there is some expression of becoming taking place, becoming deeper, becoming more aware, becoming more concentrated, becoming more conscious, becoming more still, whatever. So we look and we explore and we see that when we look at our life, there is the becoming process. Sometimes we invest that becoming with some higher principles. We might call it ev- evolution and we get the idea that we're evolving onto something greater, either collectively or individually. Sometimes we sense we're just being present. And when... And And from the literal standpoint of just being here and now, in the subtlety of the moment of being here and now, it doesn't feel like we're going anywhere. We're moving anywhere. We're just right now. So when we look at our experience of life and our relationship to life, at times, quite truthfully and quite experientially, we can say, I am just right now. That's it. And quite truthfully and quite experientially, we can say that we're becoming and changing and we're moving from one state of being, one condition to another. And we might ask ourselves in all of this, Is that it? Cut away all the dross, cut away all the mental entertainment. (coughs) Cut away all the various roles which you and I jump in and jump out of and develop and let go of and bring in new ones. Strip away all of that. Is it that the bareness of things, so to speak, comes down to being and becoming? I think death is a great friend to us. Unfortunately, it's frequently treated as, for ourselves and others, as public enemy number one. And we view sometimes with an immense degree of alarm the character, the possibility of our uh, exhaustion from being on this earth, but the tradition has always said, let's give some reflection to death, to endings. And sometimes it seems that when one actually does that and looks at one's life and the context of one's life, that for some the very thought of death, the very idea, the very reflection on death becomes and is regarded as a morbid subject, a kind of taboo which we have made about life. And as a result, and rather sadly in a way, many people have never seen a corpse. When somebody dies, quite frequently the sheet is pulled immediately over the head of the person. Sometimes it's so difficult to cope with, understandably, because of our cultural situation, we want to leave it in the hands of the professionals who can be more detached from the situation. And all of this, I think, helps to keep out of our deeper references to, and connectedness with life. And so we go on living in a kind of fool's world, a fool's world, in which every effort is made to obscure that life and death are related as intimately as wood and trees. When there is a, a monk, in the monastery, in the center, oh, we did much of our sitting and walking outside. The meditation teacher, Ajahn uh, Dhamadharo, would actively discourage anybody from sitting in the huts, or about a hundred huts, forming a kind of general semicircle on this uh, piece of land. But he didn't like the monks Uh, or the nuns um, in the monastery doing their meditation in their huts. Mostly, I think, because he didn't trust them. (laughs) So there was great encouragement (laughs) to be visible, to be outside. And right in the center of the, the grounds, which were perhaps maybe four or five times the size of this hall, there was the cremation spot in the middle. And we were in an area of southern Thailand, and there's a great in Nakhon Si Tamarat, which uh, peculiarly is, translates as the, the, the city of the kings of, da, of Dharma. Nakhon Sri Tamaraj. Nakhon Si Tamarat, as they say in Thailand, the city of the kings of Dharma. And this particular town, just a couple of miles from the monastery, had the highest murder rate in Southeast Asia and the terrorism and violence which ensued in that area tragically and sadly people would come who had been murdered and killed and died of course those of old age and would come to the funeral place and part of the the responsibility of the monks, of monks of practice, is to take, go to the spot, and stand there and witness death, to see the death, as well as the monks and the nuns, of course, that died in the monastery itself. And many times it doesn't touch, it didn't reach, one just observe something. But sometimes, in the witnessing of life and the witnessing of death. In all the forms, from a creature to an animal to a, to a human being, sometimes it registers. Sometimes the organic truths of life touch us in a way which can contribute to waking us up, can be a friend in, in getting a clearer perspective of the conventional state of our human existence, in such a way that you and I never take it for granted. So I say that in the process of becoming and in the movement and our aloneness within that movement, that The viewing which, in a way, is beyond self, in a way. What I think what we find in our everyday mind is the preoccupations about my personal life, my family life, my relationships with other people. And we've got so involved at the level of personal self. And there's of course in the conventional world there's clear place for that. There's a clear appropriateness for thinking about one's personal self. But this spiritual tradition has said and emphasized again and again it's not just about that. That this self is just a conventionally agreed self conventionally made up through the circumstances of interacting human beings. And if we don't get too preoccupied with it, we don't make too much fuss about the state of our self, the state of our mind, the state of our body, and all that which makes up self, then, as it were, the door can open a little bit. We can allow into our hearts, into our consciousness, a little bit more light about life instead of about me. And in the teachings of not-self, not-me, not-I, they they begin to make sense. They're not an abstract theory and some ideas generated. They're born out of the insights of men, men and women who have said, yes, personal self and conventional, but let the light in to look beyond that. And of course, of course, we, we don't get the encouragement. We don't get the in endorsement, the direction, the intimations of no self-seeing, beyond self-seeing, trans, seeing, whatever language feels appropriate. Because we've got so preoccupied with the, my state of mind, my state of body, my life, and the vision. Gets lost if it was ever present. So sometimes in our bare aloneness, and the willingness to uh, experience that that bare aloneness. Sometimes with the becoming process that goes on there is a becoming process which is the becoming born of interest in oneself and I'm not negating that or putting that down in any way but that we see the becoming what I wish to become what I am becoming where my life is going and there's the becoming which has self Focused in it. Usually we think of becoming in terms of roles, sometimes states of mind, of course, here or whatever, and that's that movement. Can we respond to the unfolding moment which takes place with the acknowledgement of that becoming process without the charge of self in it? What would it be to do that? And just sense something bigger. Not me, not I, not my life, but something bigger which is onwardly becoming. Eternally becoming, we might say. which isn't going to stop still for you and for me? What would it be to consider that? Moving out of the narrowly defined self. What would our sense of life be? (coughs) What would it do to the, the personal becoming? What influence would it have What if there's a larger picture? What would that mean about the personal becoming and death? I'm not sure if death would mean too much. I'm not sure if that sting you associate with the end of life would be a threat anymore. I'm not sure if it would make any real difference to anything. Because if we've made deep friends with life, with each other and with ourselves, and we understand what that is, I think we'll make deep friends with death as well. So we have some time and opportunity in our time here to look into all of these things. To let the light in, so that we're not too defined by personal considerations and we have a sense of something bigger. And perhaps in that sense of something bigger there is a a vast freedom for us. I don't think these things which we talk about in the groups or which are explored a little bit in these uh, evening talks and in the meditations and reflections, I don't think any of this is so far away from us. I don't think any of these Inquiries, explorations are a, long, are, are a long way down the road. I think our liberation and our discovery of what is vast is very, very close at hand. Closer to us than our thoughts. Closer to us than our ideas of personal existence. And at best, we might say that, all we might ask of ourselves, not to be a striving, efforting meditator, but perhaps to be a little patient with the various quirks of personality which pop into consciousness and out during the course of the day. And to find time amidst the appearances of self to just find a little bit of space there, a little bit of light there to contemplate on these things and to sense something which words are hopeless tools. May all beings see into life, may all beings see into themselves, may all beings abide with freedom.